John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 128 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a truly conservative perspective because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Well, a week from today, we should be able to tell you who the next president of the United States is going to be. Of course, this being 2020, anything is possible. We, it's, I guess, conceivable that we may not have a 100% clear picture by a week from today, which would be the day after votes started being counted in the United States of America. Uh, but today, we are going to provide you with our fearless predictions for what is going to go down. Now, to be clear, I, I would like at least some liberty to alter those just before the actual vote count begins. But... For the record, since we don't have another podcast between now and the election, I am going to devote most of this podcast episode to predicting what will happen in the United States presidential election. Before we get to that, though, I want to recap a little bit of the news that has happened over the last week. There was a debate between Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden, and I was incorrect about how that debate would go down. Ironically, my original instincts after the first debate, which was indeed a shit show, were that Trump, if there was another debate, would be forced to rein in his personality. I, I shifted from that original instinct because it just appeared as if in his public statements, he really did not give a damn anymore, that he was just letting it all hang out. And so I said in the last episode of the podcast that he would uh, he would do the same thing as he did in the first debate and that it was going to be another shit show. Well, it didn't turn out that way. 
Now, part of that uh, was probably strategic. Part of that was a different debate moderator. I do think having a woman, especially a woman of color, probably uh, helped with regard to the the maintenance of the decorum of the debate. Chris Wallace being a white male who's a liberal from Fox News Channel and Trump having none of it uh, just did not contribute to, to that atmosphere. But the, the second debate, even though it was supposed to be the third debate because the second debate got canceled, uh, was far, far better. Not that it could have been much worse, but was far, far better than the first debate, at least from the standpoint of substance and decorum and mutual respect and not interrupting each other. I did think that the moderator was unfair to Trump, uh, which is hilarious because she got a lot of kudos from even some Trump fans in comparison to the way that uh, Chris Wallace handled the debate. But she clearly interrupted Trump far more than she interrupted Biden. The questions were all based in liberal orthodoxy. I mean, and that's really the, the most insidious element of bias when the uh, when it comes to the the liberal news media you you can you don't have to be overtly biased all you have to do is pick your questions and the context of the questions from from the standpoint of what is it that liberalism is about i mean you know all these questions about climate change and of course every question about uh, the covid pandemic comes from the perspective of the that per, that the liberal view of this is inherently correct and that's biased uh, and not to mention just the subject matter uh, is very much in, in keeping with this idea that Trump is to blame for everything and uh, very much to the advantage of Joe Biden that being said i thought Joe Biden was even worse on covid than he had been previously and I, I thought that was difficult to achieve. I mean, because I, I think Joe Biden is horrendous on COVID. I don't think he understands the virus. I don't think he understands the facts. I don't think he has any clue. Uh, and, and by the way, his plan that he keeps talking about proves he has no clue. His entire plan is nothing more than masks and money. Correct. That's all it is. Masks and money. And, you know, criticizing Trump and blaming him for 230,000-plus deaths. I mean, right there, to me, that's absurd. When you're blaming the President of the United States for 230,000-plus deaths, regardless of whether or not you agree with the definition of death in, in the situation regarding the coronavirus pandemic, I do not, although I, I do believe that we're clearly well over 100,000 deaths. But what the exact number is, who the hell knows? I don't think we're ever going to know, partially because— the way they decided to do this was was lacking in transparency and inherently suspect and inherently nonsensical. But I digress. The, the reality here is that when Trump gets blamed for a virus that has impacted the entire world and many places in the world just as badly, if not worse, than the United States, I, I can't take you seriously when you're blaming the president of the United States for that when you're doing it so blatantly and so obviously as Joe Biden is doing. But that doesn't bother me nearly as much as the fact that he did a couple other things with regard to the virus. One, he claimed that we were having a thousand people die a day, which is just not accurate. Now, I mean, we've had a lot of people still dying. It's a little over 800 a day right now. But if you're going to make a big deal about the stats, at least be accurate. And if Trump had said something as inaccurate as that, the media would have been all over him. 
But Biden just casually says a thousand people a day are dying. No, no. On the worst days of the week, about a thousand are being recorded as having died. But on the seven day average, it's somewhere in the in the realm of 800, give or take, depending on which source you believe. So that was inaccurate. And then really mind blowingly, Biden said twice, twice that about 200,000 more Americans are going to die by the end of the year. Now, it was obvious that he was referring to the University of Washington projection, which back in September said that by the end of this year, by the beginning of 2021, the United States would have 410,000 deaths either with or of coronavirus. Now, when that projection was made, I immediately said that's bullshit. We are not going to have 410,000 deaths by the end of the year. You know who now agrees with me? The University of Washington projections. Because they immediately retracted that. Almost immediately. You see, the beauty of these projections for them is they, they're, they're made several months ahead of time. So that by the time we actually get to the finish line, no one remembers. And then in the meantime, they continually update the projections. And almost immediately, I mean, even people like me, not experts, just looking at the data, using common sense, realize, wait a minute, that number is nonsensical. They retracted that, reduced the the projection dramatically. I don't know what it is currently, but it's nowhere near 410,000 anymore. So Joe Biden is exaggerating a projection that has no credibility to begin with and has already been revised by the the same people who made the projection. Correct. And no one calls him on it in the news media. Nobody, including Donald Trump. And and frankly, Trump may not have understood exactly what the hell Biden was talking about. So I am uh, incredibly uh, frightened of Joe Biden on the virus. I am absolutely convinced that unless there really is a miracle which has not transpired in the data, as I had hoped that it might, uh, that in February of 2021, if he's president of the United States, he's going to do everything he possibly can to shut us down, if only for show, Uh, to go right back through another lockdown, to pretend that it's March of this year and just basically do a redo and pretend then that masks are the reason for any improvement. And he's going to have this federal mask mandate, which is going to be an an, an absolute uh, clusterfuck. Uh, on and on every possible level, it's going to cause division, chaos. It's going to do absolutely no good. And uh, but that's his big answer, because that's what the left has embraced. Because they don't want to accept the reality: we don't have much, if any, power over a damn virus. That's the bottom line of this. We might be able to delay it at times. You can't defeat it. All sorts of countries in Europe that lock down hard are seeing that right now. It's pay me now or pay me later. And once again, Sweden is still out there going, um, no one dying. No one dying. Three months plus now. One death a day in Sweden. Now, they've had an increase in cases, but almost no increase in hospitalizations and no sign of increase in deaths. And they're living basically normally in Sweden. It's just amazing that we just we pretend that that's not happened. Well, the reality is that Joe Biden doesn't have a clue. Joe Biden has been told that, uh, you know, I, don't get, I guess that Sweden's a disaster. 
there is no herd immunity. Uh, the, the threshold is is not uh, reachable without millions of people dying, and that all of this is Trump's fault. Well, I don't believe in any of that. And this is the biggest issue facing the world and the United States, and we've got a guy who's probably going to be president of the United States who doesn't have a clue on this. And then tr- Biden did something else that was really remarkable. I mean, it, I mean, in a rational world, this would have been the biggest mistake in the history, uh, at least modern history, of presidential debates. When Joe Biden said that he was going to end the oil industry in the United States of America. End the oil industry in the United States of America. You cannot be serious. And then the moderator, who was clearly horrified, <laughs> Kristen Welker was clearly horrified. <laughs> she actually says, why would you do that? And giving him a desperate opportunity to clean this up, Biden failed. Biden did not clean it up. Now, he's tried to do so after the debate, but this is a situation where you have a massive audience and at least some people are going to go, what? Well, what? 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 What did he just say? Now, he's made previous statements that were consistent with that but not at a nationally televised presidential debate where the media has no ability to censor it, at least not right off the bat because it's happening live. And if you're in Pennsylvania or if you're in Michigan, two key states, there's got to be some people that are going, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Wait a minute. What are you saying? It's just flat out ridiculous. So so you're going to end the oil industry. And, you know, he's been back and forth. He claims now that he's never been against, uh, he's never been in favor of a fracking ban. Uh, He's splitting hairs. He did say he was in favor of a fracking ban. Fracking is big in Pennsylvania. And so from both a political as well as a policy standpoint, this was a massive gaffe. And there have been some, uh, including Trump, who have tried to take advantage of this. Of course, the media has been very soft in their coverage of this. And there's been some coverage of this mistake, but it's not it's not had any of the ferocity uh, that it would normally have for that level of a gaffe in a presidential debate. So I thought Biden really did a terrible job, except for the fact that he did not seem incoherent. He did not seem to have dementia. He did not seem to have Alzheimer's. Uh, so from that perspective, he accomplished what he needed to. When you're when you're ahead, and you know your opponent is claiming that uh, you're losing your mind, as long as you stand upright, don't lose control of your bodily functions, don't have any senior moments, you're okay. And that that was what Biden accomplished there. Trump, for his part, I thought was okay. I mean, his demeanor was a lot better. Substantively, I didn't think he took advantage of all of his opportunities. But, you know, since I agree with him on most of the issues, I thought, okay, that's a guy who at least was plausibly presidential. It's hard to it's hard to wash that with what we saw in the first debate. And, you know, to me, uh, if if I was running Trump's campaign, God forbid, I would have had that person be at the first debate. And then if need be, you go all guns a blazing in the second debate. As a, as a, and instead of going in reverse, I, I didn't understand the strategy. If there was one, there probably wasn't one because Trump's a child. Uh, it was probably just him deciding on his own. Now, I'm amazed that someone was able to convince him to calm things down in the second debate. I'm amazed. 
I don't know who did that. I don't know how it happened. I, I doubt it occurred uh, based upon uh, Trump's own advice. Maybe Ivanka did it. I don't know. But uh, I, I was I was remarkable. I was I found that to be remarkable. And I was wrong in predicting that the second debate, final debate, uh, would be a shit show. I don't think it moved the needle all that much politically, even in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan. Although, my gosh, if uh, after Biden said what he did at the debate, (laughs) the idea that Texas is still in play, which NBC is saying that Texas is a toss up state, if that really is true even after the debate, then Biden's going to win in a landslide. I mean, my gosh, when uh, someone on uh, the national debate stage says they're going to end the oil industry (laughs) and they're already a liberal Democrat and uh, and the state of Texas is still in play. Wow. Um, That's that's really hard to believe. That's that's really hard to believe. All I know is what's on the Internet. I mean, if that's the case. Then, uh, then Trump is in even bigger trouble than I think that he is. Now, uh, you know, the last couple of days have been dominated by things that don't really matter that much, uh, because I think most people have already made up their minds. But I did want to uh, point out at least one clip that's going to seem, maybe it will, maybe it won't, rather minor at first glance. But to me, it's emblematic of a lot of how this campaign has gone down, especially with regard to the media coverage. And it deals with Joe Biden and this issue of whether or not he's losing his mind, whether or not he has all his faculties, whether or not uh, he has some semblance of Alzheimer's. And he was doing an interview with George Lopez, the comedian. Now, my first question is, why is he doing an interview with George Lopez, the comedian? Uh, that I found odd. I mean, here we are, you know, but just over a week away from the election, and he's he's basically not uh, making himself vulnerable to any real questioning, but instead is doing an interview with a comedian who is obviously a leftist. He's also Hispanic. He's obviously going to be voting for Biden, as is almost everybody in the entertainment industry, at least uh, publicly. And it's interesting when you hear this clip, I want you to listen carefully to what Lopez says as he's introducing this question that elicits a response that created a bit of controversy. And because I haven't heard many people reference this part of the clip, you're going to hear George Lopez say they asked me or they told me or they I forget the exact phrasing. We'll hear it in a second. But he indicates that he was told to ask Joe Biden a particular question. Well, who told him? Who's the they? They, they told me. Who, who's the they? It certainly sounds to me as if he was told by the people that set up the interview, which are the Biden campaign people. So this is this is effectively, in my view, not an interview. This is a a campaign appearance This is that's set up to look like an interview via Zoom. And Biden's sitting there with his wife, Jill Biden, and uh, and and he gets asked the question about, you know, why is this election so important? Why it is that people should vote for him? You know, it's boilerplate stuff. And when he responds, he clearly is setting up the contrast between him and Donald Trump. He could not be more clear that he's setting up the contrast between him and Donald Trump. But he refers to Donald Trump as George. Now, I interpret this as he's suddenly 
thinking he's running against George W. Bush. And he stops himself in the middle of it. Well, the media has a completely different reaction to this. And they, and I, in my view, they're actually lying about how this went down and what was said. But just for the record, here's the clip of the comedian George Lopez. And yes, his name being George becomes a, a, a key factor in all this. This is George Lopez with uh, Joe Biden and his wife, Jill, uh, sitting next to him in a Zoom interview. Hey, so, so you know that over 50 million people have already voted, which I think is inspiring <laughs> for the country. You know, Joe, there's going to be eight days left. They wanted me to ask you, and I want to know, like, if someone is undecided or maybe, maybe thinking about not voting, why should they vote and why should they vote for you? Well, uh, first of all, the reason they should vote is that there's a lot on the, on the ballot this year. I mean, this is the most consequent, not because I'm running, but because who I'm running against. This is the most consequential election uh, in, a, in a long, long, long time. And the character of the country, in my view, is literally on the ballot. What kind of country we're going to be? Four more years of George, uh, George uh, he uh, is going to find ourselves in a position where if uh, Trump gets elected, uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be in a different world. All right. Now, what I heard there was four more years of George of being a very, very key word there. Four more years of George. And then he says, uh, George, and he realizes and, and there's those who believe that his wife mouths the words Trump to him. Her lips do move. I can't hear it in the audio, uh, but, you know, that, that she says to him Trump, and then he he says Trump. Uh, the of George is critical because the liberal media immediately <laughs> jumped in to try to fix this for Joe Biden by claiming, no, 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 you stupid Trump supporters, uh, who think that uh, he's referencing George W. Bush. No, no, he's referencing George Lopez, the interviewer. Well, that makes absolutely no sense. Uh, by the way, it would make, would make no sense even if it, he didn't say of George uh, because of the context. But they lied, and they actually put out a transcript that said, for years, uh, George. They changed of to uh. So it it's they're trying to make it seem as if he is referencing his interviewer, like he just stopped and and referenced George out of the blue because he's referencing George Lopez, the people, the person who is interviewing him. I don't believe that that's accurate. I don't think that makes any sense. Now, here's the relevance of it. Now, there is a relevance as far as Biden's mental state, because let's be clear, George W. Bush hasn't run for president. In 16 years, it was 2004. And that's what it feels like that Biden was referencing was George W. Bush's reelection. Let's hope, by the way, it was George W. Bush, not Herbert Walker Bush. But but it, let's assume that it was George W. Bush. And it's 2004. That's 16 years ago that that Biden's brain suddenly went back to. And that's troubling. Now, does that disqualify him? No. People make brain cramps all the time. People get older. Those brain cramps increase. It seems to be the way the mind works as far as memory is concerned. It's concerning, but it's not the biggest deal in the world. To me, I was much more outraged by the media reaction that we have to actually now lie 
We now have to lie in order to protect Joe Biden. And it's emblematic of just how deeply invested the news media is in the United States of America uh, in favor of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and against uh, uh, Donald Trump. I mean, there, there, there's been no scrutiny of Kamala Harris at all. And here's a woman who very likely will be president by 2025. And uh, she has gotten none of the normal scrutiny that someone who is not that well-known a figure. I mean, she, yes, she ran for president, but she didn't even make it to Iowa. So she's not that well-known. She's not even that well-known here in California where she's a senator. So her record has gotten no scrutiny. And she's getting a free pass. Joe Biden's getting a free pass. And, of course, the narrative, the news narrative, is all very, very negative about Donald Trump, which is, hey, look, I hate Donald Trump. He deserves a lot of the negative media that he's getting, but not all of it is fair. And, and I, I'm someone who believes in fairness. I'm someone who believes in truth. And as far as the way the media is crafting the narrative of this election, there's no more dramatic area uh, where that is the case than with regard to the COVID pandemic. And I wrote a column about this, which you can find at our Twitter feed, at Individual1Pod, where I make the argument that the media's narrative on COVID has made it virtually impossible for Trump to win. If you just take away everything else, that the headwinds that the media have created uh, uh, via their narrative on the coronavirus would make it virtually impossible for any incumbent president to win. When they're putting forward this idea, backing up this idea, not criticizing Biden at all for promoting this notion that the president is the cause, the cause of over 230,000 deaths in America, which is an absurdity. But when that is out there and being substantiated and being considered to be real and legitimate, I'm sorry, uh, that has a devastating impact especially with swing voters who aren't that bright. They don't pay that much attention. Headlines are all that matter to them. And the entire COVID narrative is clearly intended to destroy Donald Trump. And we're seeing that even in the last week of the campaign. I've talked many times about how the most critical moment, not just for Trump, but for the country as a whole, in the perception of the coronavirus pandemic, was when we went from flatten the curve regarding hospitalizations to stop every positive test. That was the moment. When they write the history of the destruction of the United States, that's going to be a very key moment that, that we shifted. And I don't even know how it happened. It happened awfully quickly. But, and, and some of us noticed it. But there wasn't nearly enough an outcry because we were in the middle of a panic. But as soon as we went from flatten the curve to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed to government has the authority to try, in my opinion, very ineffectively and counterproductively, to stop every single positive test, a test that's bogus and, and, and often uh, is inaccurate and creates false positives, but it has far too low a threshold. But when, when that becomes the standard and that becomes the, the way that the news media is telling the story, it's all about new positives. And here in California, it's literally running our lives 
whether counties can open up is based upon how many positive tests, not hospitalizations, not deaths, positive tests. Well, guess what happens with positive tests? Not only in many, many, many cases do they not indicate any semblance of actual illness, that they're asymptomatic people. Many times people don't even know they have it and they test positive. But it's even more insidious than that. Because when a, at this point, seven, eight months in, a certain percentage of the population has, has it or has had it and still has remnants of it roaming around in their nose, guess what? Guess what? When you increase testing, you inherently are going to increase the number of positive cases. Correct. Well, guess what? Guess what has happened in the last couple of weeks? Purely by coincidence, ha, 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 purely by coincidence, the testing in the United States of America has exploded, exploded. We are now well over one million tests a day. Boy, that escalated quickly. And when you have well over one million tests a day, guess what's going to happen? You can have a positivity rate of only 6%, and you're going to get over 60,000 new quote-unquote cases a day. And so that's exactly what's happened. So we have now nationwide over the last couple of weeks, we've had an explosion in testing and an explosion in the perception of the number of cases. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't areas of the country, like in Wisconsin, that are having legitimate spikes. But guess what? That's because Wisconsin has never been truly hit yet. So in the upper Midwest, in rural areas, the Dakotas, what have you, places like that, those areas have not been hit as of yet. It was inevitable. It's now happening. Hopefully they're not going to be overwhelmed. Like even New York City, according to the governor, was never overwhelmed with regard to their hospitals. There's not, unfortunately, much we can do about it. But the idea that somehow nationwide the virus has suddenly sprung out of control again is simply not accurate. It is a statistical anomaly. The, the positivity rate has not budged hardly at all. Hospitalizations have gone up a little bit. Deaths have barely budged. But even that is, is partly a statistical anomaly because, guess what? When you test over a million people a day and now you get a pool of people, you get 60 to 70,000 more people in the pool of people, quote unquote, with COVID, guess what? If anything happens to those 60 to 70,000 people and they end up in the hospital for any reason, they are COVID hospitalizations. So inherently, there's going to be an increase in, quote unquote, COVID hospitalizations. Does that mean that the hospitals are close to getting overwhelmed? No. And so, unfortunately, this is all way too nuanced for the news media and for the average American who's a moron. Uh, and and the, the reality is perception is reality. That's what reality is in this day and age. And so this is creating another massive headwind for Trump having any opportunity to pull this out at the end like he did in 2016. And, and I had a very interesting situation occur in my household. As you know, 
I uh, have been ardently anti-Trump from the very beginning of his candidacy back in 2015. I, I loathe the man personally. But because of the coronavirus thing, I have been somewhat conflicted. I'm not going to vote for him, uh, but I can't vote for Joe Biden either because liberals have lost their fucking minds and we're heading for another lockdown, uh, especially if Democrats win big uh, a week from uh, yesterday. And, and so I don't have a dog in this hunt. I don't even know what the heck to be rooting for. And my daughter, who has been on this podcast before, we interviewed her uh, about the lockdown and, and a bunch of other things. And she's always been kind of on the fence about Donald Trump, much more so than me. In fact, uh, very famously, before we even did the Individual One podcast, I interviewed her on my previous podcast, The World According to Zig, and she uh, very famously asked the question, Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Now, she's eight years old now. You can tell she's not eight years old there. That was four or five years ago. And boy, things have changed in a lot of different ways. Uh, but, but that was actually the focus of the very first episode of the Individual One podcast. The question was, is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? And Trump has never been somebody who Grace liked, largely because, let's be clear, uh, she knew her dad didn't like Trump. Now, her mom has always been much, much more pro-Trump than uh, her dad. Uh, I don't seem to have much influence on her in, in many things. And apparently I don't have much influence on her in politics either, because like a lot of kids, she has been very upset by the lockdown, especially here in California. I, I, I happen to believe that by far, I mean, this is astonishing even to a cynic like me. I, it's absolutely amazing to me that the news media has completely, completely just ignored the blatant, abject child abuse, which is inherent in the lockdowns. And I'm not just talking about schools being closed, which are ridiculous, but I'm talking about almost everything that we're doing focuses mostly on kids who are at, at least, the least at risk here and in situations that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And my kids' lives have been dramatically impacted, which is a large part of why I'm so incensed by the reaction, what I perceive to be the overreaction to COVID. I mean, my eight-year-old is having trouble reading and spelling because uh, of the COVID shutdown, stopping school, uh, you know, her ability to, to see friends, see grandma. Uh, Disneyland is closed, which she's a pass holder, and you would be spending my wife's birthday this past week normally at Disneyland. Uh, playgrounds are closed. The pool was closed for quite a long time. We're lucky to even have access to a pool. None of these things make any damn sense. The beaches were closed. If they made some sense, I'd be okay with it. But they, they've been completely nonsensical. And the amount of child abuse that's inherent in this is astonishing. Uh, and it's cruel. And liberals have overlooked this, and the media has overlooked this, because they think it's good for them, They because they think it's bad for Trump. Well, anyway, uh, the other day, my daughter Grace, on her own, completely unprovoked, wrote a poster <laughs> She just sat down at her desk and she she wrote a poster. Now, the spelling on this is horrendous. And I'm, I'm blaming the COVID shutdown of schools and, and, and as well as probably her parents not doing a good enough job of emphasizing a spelling. But uh, phonetically, it's it's pretty well done. And here's what my daughter Grace wrote. We need to have freedom. 
We are not zoo animals. We are human beings. We deserve freedom. Vote for Trump right now, exclamation point. And then she wrote an American flag (laughs) emblem at the bottom of the poster. P.S. This is Grace Ziegler. So, um, okay, wow. Uh, That was quite shocking. Are you not entertained? Um, (laughs) uh, She was very serious about this. This was not something she did uh, for attention. Uh, She's had enough. And just to prove how much uh, she's done with all this, so she only has two friends in our neighborhood that uh, are close enough uh, to where, you know, on a, on, a, on a drop of a hat, you can say, hey, you want to come over or vice versa, and whose parents you know, aren't uh, so terrified of the virus that they allow uh, this to actually happen. And, and so yesterday, those two friends came over, and things were fine until uh, they started bragging to my 8-year-old daughter about the drive-by birthday party that they had just attended. And they were bragging about it because they were so proud of how safe they were, how safe they were going to a drive-by birthday party. You cannot be serious. Well, my daughter couldn't take it. My daughter literally could not take it. She, she went into the house and she got the poster that she had made that I just read for you. And she uh, came back. Uh, to uh, these two kids who she now refers to as libs. Those are her words. That's her word, not mine. These libs, and she read them the poster. And then she apparently, and I didn't witness this, but my wife did, she apparently then instructed them to leave. She could not take it anymore. (laughs) They were being too much like libs. And my 8-year-old daughter has decided uh, she is all in on the Trump train because she believes that that's the only path to freedom. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Now, what I don't have the heart to tell her is, one, Trump's going to lose, and two, he's not actually the path to freedom. And the reason why he's not the path to freedom is that uh, he does not have the moral authority to declare the pandemic over. That's something that Trump fans don't want to accept. And it's something I've thought a lot about. I mean, because, you know, I even thought about potentially supporting uh, Donald Trump because that's how insane this last eight months has become. And if I thought he truly had the ability to end this thing and bring some semblance of rationality back, I might I might have actually done it. But I don't. One, because he's incompetent, uh, but mostly because he lacks the moral authority. Let's pretend he gets reelected and let's pretend he says, all right, you know what? This thing is over. We're back to normal. And I, I, I'm, I'm really going to do everything I possibly can. I'm going to use federal funding and all, all the power at my disposal to force the whole country to open up. One, he doesn't have the authority. But two, he doesn't have the moral authority. Forget about the legal authority. He doesn't have the moral authority. And that's what's really important. Because at least 52% of the country hates him and doesn't trust him. And it has become obvious that whatever he says about the virus, those 52% are going to automatically take the opposite view, automatically. And so let's pretend that Trump declared this thing over and we're going back to normal. 50, you can't do that when at least 50, 52%, maybe more than that, of the country says, "Uh uh-uh, we're not buying. In fact, the fact that you're saying that makes us think that this thing is worse than ever because we don't trust you. 
So you need full participation. You need full participation to get this thing back to any semblance of normalcy. Well, you can never have that with Trump, regardless of what the facts in the ground are. It doesn't matter if we found a vaccine that was 100% effective. It wouldn't matter. It would not matter. In fact, in the blue states, they would probably lock down harder just as punishment for Trump being reelected. So the only theoretical path here is you need to have someone who the left respects and believes with the authority to declare it over. Now, unfortunately, Biden is a terrible person to put in that position because he doesn't have a freaking clue. But at least in theory, in theory, he would have the moral authority because if he did declare it over, liberals would say, oh, okay, I can buy that. That's fine. And conservatives would be like, thank fucking God. I don't care who declared it over. Let's just get back to normal. And so you would then therefore have a high enough participation in the population to get back to some semblance of normalcy. That cannot happen under Donald Trump. Now, I did not have the heart to tell my daughter that because I don't, I mean, she's already having a difficult time uh, with this whole thing. Heck, we don't even know where the hell we're going to trick or treat uh, on Saturday and what should be the best Halloween of her life. And now it's probably going to be the worst. And so, you know, I I didn't uh, give her that reality, but that is the reality. And as far as, um, as we get into what's going to happen on on Tuesday and the, and the election results, one of my bedrock beliefs about why Trump is not going to win is based in the notion that there is no evidence of a lockdown backlash. See, I thought there would be at first. And if you've been a fan of this podcast, you probably have seen the evolution of my thought on this. I kept saying... Democrats, as they always do, are going to overplay their hand because they always, 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 always overplay their hand. And they did so here in a massive way, except the circumstances made it impossible for them to actually overplay their hand. There were a perfect storm of circumstances where they they had a safety net that prevented them. And the media is a big part of that. The media created this safety net where they couldn't overplay their hand. And let me just very quickly give you the, the argument for my belief that there is no coming backlash. And boy, I got to folks, I got to tell you, I want there to be a backlash to the lockdowns so bad, so bad, I would give almost anything. I, I'd give my left pinky finger if there was a major backlash to the lockdown coming on Tuesday. But there's not. There's not. There's no cavalry coming. There is no cavalry. I wish there was, but there is not. And let me explain why I've come to that conclusion. A lot of it has to do with here in California. I I realize people around the country think that I have a jaundiced view of all this because I live in California and we're a heavy lockdown state and we're basically one party state. The Republican Party doesn't exist here. And, you know, therefore, our governor, King Gavin Newsom, can do whatever the heck he wants. And there's I I get it. There's some truth to that. But it actually also gives me a unique perspective into this, because let's face it, most I don't know if it's most, but a lot of people are not partisans. They're not politically partisan 
people. There are still, especially in a state like California, a good number of people who don't really care that much about Democrat or Republican. You would think in a state like California that purely out of backlash to the extreme and absurd lockdowns, my God, our governor has just given us ridiculous restrictions on our Thanksgiving and Christmas gatherings. I mean, ridiculous stuff, completely absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. And yet Donald Trump can barely crack 30 percent in the polls here. 30 percent. 30 percent. One poll had him at 28, 29 the other day. Now, if there was going to be any kind of backlash against the lockdown, that would not be happening. That would not be happening. I get California is super liberal, super democratic, but not that much. Not that much. I mean, uh, you know, we just in two years ago, we had a, we had a very liberal uh, proposition uh, regarding um, the issue of, of apartments that I was really concerned about. It, lo- it was very socialistic. It went down like 60-40. So it's not as if this state in the population is completely, totally socialist. There, you know, a lot of times in these propositions, their sensibility does end up winning. Not always, but sometimes. So in other words, my, my point here is there's enough people to where if they who are open-minded on the politics, that if there was going to be a lockdown backlash, Trump would be over 30% in California. Even 35, 39, 40%. Then I would go, oh, okay. There, there's a group of people out there who are pissed off about this and they're going to have their voice heard. But it's not just California. I'll tell you another place that really uh, was shocking to me and I think goes to this whole issue. And some people might think this is crazy because it's not even in the United States. But New Zealand just had an election. New Zealand is one of the harshest lockdown countries in the world, in the world. And they just reelected via landslide their liberal socialist leader in New Zealand. It was a shockingly large victory in New Zealand. Now, I realize New Zealand's not the United States of America, but human beings are human beings. And there's something going on here where human beings, too many of them, have been completely duped into the idea that government can control this virus and that therefore we're willing and able to do anything government wants us to do because it gives us the illusion of safety. That's what's happened here. And I I have now come to the belief that there are too many people who should be against the lockdown who are not for there to be any backlash. Older people, I think, are a key demographic here. Because COVID targets older people, I think it kills a lot of the backlash because the older people are where the backlash should begin. The older people who remember World War II, who have lived in a different era, who uh, who have, uh, you know, weren't always wussified like uh, our younger generation is today, who have a bit of balls. Those people are scared out of their minds and too many of them have become pro lockdown for there to be any backlash. Plus, you also have a lot of lazy losers who like this. It makes them feel better about their shitty lives. 
They are envious of people who actually have lives. They're envious of the people that can go to Disneyland, so they're actually glad no one can go to Disneyland because their lives are now just like everybody else's. So the lazy losers actually like this. They like this new, this new world. The younger people are a bunch of conformist wussies, completely wussified. This is the, you know, participation trophy generation. They've had no adversity in their lives whatsoever. They, they conform to everything. They're PC. They're virtue signaling. So you lose all of them. And then you got liberals, partisan liberals, who actually think this is awesome because they know it's going to defeat Donald Trump. So when you combine all those groups, that's way over 50% of the population. That might be 70% of the population, maybe more. Therefore, there is no lockdown backlash coming. And the lockdown backlash anticipation is a huge part of why Trump fans still believe he's going to win. They, they are completely convinced he's going to win. In fact, they believe he's going to win in a landslide. I see this hourly on my Twitter feed. And I keep telling people, good luck with that. Good luck with that because the cavalry ain't coming. There is no lockdown backlash. Over 50% of the population actually likes the lockdown. As, and it's impossible for the Trump supporter to understand that. It's abhorrent for me to believe that, but I see it at least because I don't have my vision clouded by devotion to Donald Trump. Correct. I mean, the reality is his supporters look at things very differently. I love the poorly educated. And so when you look at it, the standpoint, that there's not going to be this massive lockdown backlash. It's very hard to make an argument that Trump is going to win that my daughter's view of Trump is going to carry the day. Here's how I look at the 2020 election. And, you know, this is seemingly a very complex situation. I'm going to break it down and make it very, very simple. I actually view this election in, in very simple terms, very basic terms. 2020 is a redo of the 2016 election, except the wind is blowing directly in Trump's face in 2020 when it was blowing at his back in 2016. That's the, the easiest, simplest way to look at this. And in 2016, he got lucky as shit. He ran the table in a way that was statistically almost impossible. And I was one of those who was wrong. Up until 2016, I had always been right about every presidential election, sometimes to a ridiculously... A uh, strong level of detail, especially 2004. I nailed that one almost to the to the actual electoral college votes. I told people on my radio show in Los Angeles exactly what was going to go down that night, how it was going to end up being called, when it was going to be called, almost to the hour. I, I was 100% right in that. I'm sure I got cocky, and I got overconfident. In 2016, I was wrong. I will have a I do have a confession to make for those who have followed me all all this time. In 2016, publicly, I was far more confident about Trump losing than I was privately. And that's, you know, it's it's been a very, very rare situation for me to not be 1,000% transparent about my public and private views. But And and every time I do it, it's been a mistake. It's only happened a couple times in my life. But this was one of them where 
publicly I portrayed a far more confident image that Trump was going to lose than privately. Privately, the last month or two of that campaign, my hair was on fire in text messages and phone calls to my good friend, Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth, the chairman of the House Budget Committee, telling him that his party was about to blow this, that they were playing with fire, that Trump might be able to pull this off. Now, I still never believed it was actually going to happen, but I was concerned about it. I don't have the same level of concern in 2020. Now, is it theoretically possible that, that lightning could strike twice in the same way? I guess, sure. It's statistically possible. It, it's not a 0% proposition as of yet. But, uh, you know, I, I look at uh, 2020 as a mulligan for, for 2016. And we have a lot more information to use when we uh, strategize our mulligan than we had in 2016. One, we have obviously the, the, the data from 2016, but we also have something else that Trump fans seem to conveniently forget. And this is really rather amazing to me because they all say, but John, you can't believe the polls. You can't believe the polls. You can't believe the polls. Um, uh, we, we have something called the 2018 elections. Correct. I know Trump fans don't want to think about that. We have the 2018 elections before COVID, while the economy was going great gangbusters. We had a midterm election, which was effectively a referendum on Donald Trump's first two years. And what happened? Democrats came out to vote in massive numbers. Republicans lost the House and they did not do nearly as well in the Senate races as they should have. It was a sound defeat for Donald Trump. Sound defeat. And, in fact, so bad that the next day he fired Jeff Sessions, his attorney general, which was a brilliant move because no one paid any attention to that. And that set up what ended up happening with the entire Russian investigation. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But the reality is Trump got crushed in 2018. And since then, the economy has gone to shit. And he's being blamed for 230,000 deaths in America. Unfairly, I believe, but effectively by the news media. So what exactly has changed between 2018 and 2020 that is suddenly going to have Donald Trump pull off a great victory? Now, his name was not on the ballot in 2018, but that's the point. He is such a negative turnout machine. He's such a motivator in a negative direction that his name didn't even have to be on the ballot. He was that toxic to the entire Republican brand and that much of a motivator to Democratic voters to get them out to the polls. And that was before there was even universal mail-in balloting. So I don't understand what what the theory here is that somehow this is all going to change. The theory that does make some sense is a lockdown backlash, but I already told you why I don't believe anything like that's happening, unfortunately. Now, I I do find it interesting that uh, the Trump fan is convinced that history is repeating itself because the polls are tightening slightly in their minds just in the last week, and that while in 2016 we had the Hillary's emails, now we have Hunter Biden's laptop. Well, These two things are completely different. One, um, it's Hunter Biden. It's not Joe Biden. 
That that's the part of this that I, I really don't get. I mean, and, and I fully am on board with the idea that the news media is acting like a bunch of partisan hacks by censoring the Hunter Biden story and Tony Bobolinsky, the the business partner of the Bidens, did a, a very explosive interview on Tucker Carlson on Fox News Channel last night, and he seems like a credible guy. But to me, there's no there's no there there. I mean, it all seems unseemly and a and there's a lot of smoke, but I don't know what the fire is. I don't know what the fire is with regard to Joe Biden. No one can explain that to me. It, it, you know, and I, I believe Tony Bobolinsky. I, I think he's he seems like he's telling the truth, but I don't know what relevance that truth is. But more importantly, there's no James Comey. No one would have given a shit about Hillary's emails in the last 10 days of the 2016 election if James Comey, the FBI director, had not come out. Now, remember, this is this is the FBI director of, of Obama's own administration coming out 10 days before the election saying he's reopening the investigation into Hillary's emails because they found some some new emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop, which turned out to be completely irrelevant. It was a massive mistake by James Comey. And when he tried to clean it up, it was way too little too late. And it shifted the wind in Trump's direction at a critical time just a week before an election that was going to be closer than perceived and turned into a situation where Hillary won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College because her voters didn't turn out in Wisconsin and in Michigan, and Trump got a massive turnout in Pennsylvania. And that's why he won the 2016 election. None of that is going to repeat here. The Hunter Biden laptop, especially in the middle of a pandemic, is not going to change the world, especially when there's no James Comey. And Trump's on Twitter today complaining about the lack of media coverage of the entire uh, Bobolinsky story. And I'm like, OK, I, I agree with him that the media is censoring this out of uh, partisan considerations. But if Trump wanted corruption to be a major issue, uh, maybe he should have decided not to pardon and commute people who were friends of his as a reward for keeping their mouth shut. Maybe that would have been a good idea. If he really wanted corruption to be a viable political issue for him, maybe not do some of the things that he's done, especially with regard to the, the entire Russian investigation and his friends and cronies and the way that he's used pardons and commutations and, you know, his whole drain the swamp thing turned out to be a fraud. He is the swamp. He's the swampiest president we've ever had. And so I have no sympathy for Trump not getting any traction on this Hunter Biden laptop issue. Although, again, I do think the media are a bunch of hacks and obviously are protecting Joe Biden for partisan concerns. So that's the atmosphere as we head into Tuesday's election. So what's going to happen? Well, once again, let me try to break this down in as simple a way as possible. In the last episode of the podcast, I told you that there were nine states that Trump won in 2016 that are still up for grabs. For the sake of argument, I'm going to add Texas into that because NBC has put Texas into the toss-up range. I cannot believe that that's actually accurate but I have to at least consider it to be possible. So there are basically 10 states that Trump won 
in 2016 that he could theoretically lose. And those are Texas, Florida, Georgia, Ohio, Iowa, Arizona, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Those are 10 states. Trump won them all in 2016. The way you should think about what happens on Tuesday is that those 10 states are broken into three tiers. And if you think about Trump trying to pull off this miracle, he basically has to get through all three tiers in order to get to the top of the mountain. The first tier is Ohio, Georgia, Florida, and Texas. If he loses any of those states, and a couple of them, Georgia and Florida and, and even Ohio, could theoretically be called fairly early on in the night. If he loses any of those four, it's over. He's done. Correct. He has no chance. So he must sweep all four right at the top. Now, I find it hard to believe he's going to lose Texas. I just I just I don't even want that to happen because if he loses Texas, this is a blowout of such massive proportions that it's going to be seen as a mandate for a massive federal lockdown on coronavirus. And and that's my greatest fear. So, not to mention what it means to the future of the country as far as going socialist in all in all ways possible. So, I'm actually rooting for Trump to win Texas. I, I, I just I can't I don't want to be living in a country where even Texas is voting for this bullshit. So uh, I, I refuse to believe Trump is going to lose Texas, but it is theoretically possible. Florida, Georgia and Ohio are basically coin flips. Now, if I if I had a gun to my head, I would say that Trump is probably going to win Florida, Georgia and Ohio, but he could lose one of those. And that could be the moment that decides the election. Because, again, he cannot win without all four of those states. So in that first tier, he must sweep all four. And, frankly, it must be comfortable. It must be a fairly comfortable win in those four. Otherwise, in the other states we're about to get to, he's going to have big problems. So that's the first thing to look at. Can Trump get through the first tier? of pulling off this this miracle redo of the 2016 election. Ohio, Georgia, Florida, Texas. Gun to my head, I think he does it. I think he does it, but it would not shock me at all if one of those goes down. And, you know, early on we see Georgia goes for Biden and that's it. It's over. Because if Trump loses Georgia, ain't no way he's winning the other states that he needs to win. So that's the first tier. I am very open to the idea Trump gets past the first tier. And again, bizarrely, I'm kind of rooting for it. Second tier, North Carolina, Arizona, and Iowa. These states are flat-out coin flips. They are pure coin flips. I do not know who is going to win any of the three. I do not know. They they are as on the razor's edge as they can possibly be. And, you know, frankly, with the coronavirus spiking and the stock market tanking, it just doesn't feel as if the momentum, uh, you know, as I've already referenced, the wind blowing, it doesn't feel like the momentum should be on Trump's side for late deciders at all. I mean, you know, what, what happened in 1980 was that, you know, Jimmy Carter, after a horrendous first term in office, he collapsed in the last couple of days 
of that campaign, and Ronald Reagan ended up winning in a massive landslide. That is possible here. It is possible that Biden plays the Reagan role and Trump plays the Carter role. Now, Trump has a, a much larger cult than Carter ever had, so he, he has a, a base of support that's much more rock-solid than Jimmy Carter, and the circumstances are obviously different here. So I don't anticipate it coming anywhere close to a 1980 blowout, but we could see the same kind of hemorrhaging on the part uh, of Trump's support in losing some of these close states as we did in 1980 with Jimmy Carter. Let's say Trump wins all three of those. He wins all three coin flips, right? Winning three coin flips in a row is not that easy. Uh, it, it's not impossible, but, you know, it, it, very good chance that doesn't happen. I mean, at best, it's 50-50 he gets through the second tier. That's if, that's if everything's going Trump's way. It's 50-50 he gets through the second tier. Now, in order to get through the second tier, he must, in all likelihood, win at least two of those three. I put Iowa in there simply because Iowa is absolutely a 50-50 state right now, and they've got a key Senate race. Uh, there's not that many scenarios where Iowa determines who wins the election, but Iowa is critical because if he doesn't win Iowa, it's really hard to see how he wins Michigan or Pennsylvania, which he has to do in order to close the deal. So second tier, he doesn't absolutely have to win all those three, but he's got to win at least two of them. You have to win at least two and ideally three to get through the second tier. So I would say it's about a 50-50 shot he gets through the second tier. The third tier is what would determine who won the election under this scenario. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Those are the three key states he won in shocking fashion in 2016. I believe Wisconsin is off the table. I, I, I do not believe... You know, he he had a massive rally in Wisconsin. I get the rallies all over the country are very impressive. I I do not think he's going to win Wisconsin. Wisconsin in 2016 went to Trump purely because Democrats were very complacent. They had no turnout where they should have had turnout. I cannot believe that's going to happen under these circumstances. So I find it very difficult to believe he's going to win Wisconsin. Michigan and Pennsylvania are very similar states. They're very similar in that they have Democratic governors that have imposed extreme lockdowns. And this is really the key to my there is no lockdown backlash theory. If there was a lockdown backlash, we would be seeing it in Michigan and Pennsylvania. And so far, there is no evidence of it at all. Now, there have been a couple of polls that have shown suddenly Trump doing well in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is my home state. Pennsylvania is the state that uh, was the subject of the only conversation Donald Trump and I ever had. So uh, I feel like this is this is a, a subject that I know a lot about. Uh, there have been a couple polls in the last couple of days that show Trump with real life in Pennsylvania. In fact, even winning in Pennsylvania. Those polls, in my view, are not credible. Uh, I believe that the the credible polls have Trump losing there by about four or five points, which is comfortable, but not decisive. That's still in the realm of possibility. Uh, I do not see Trump winning Michigan. 
the Fox News Channel and their polls are not always the best, and they're certainly not pro-Trump. Uh, but the, their most recent poll in Michigan has Trump losing Michigan by 12 points. That's way worse than anything that Trump was facing in 2016. There's a perception that the polls are very similar to 2016. In the case of Michigan, in my view, that's not the case. And so it really comes down to Pennsylvania. It's all about Pennsylvania. If Trump runs the gauntlet, if he gets through this obstacle course and he gets through the first tier and he gets through the second tier, then all eyes are on Pennsylvania. I can see theoretically Trump somehow winning Pennsylvania, especially after Biden's screw up on oil and fracking, although I don't think it's nearly as impactful as Republicans are hoping, especially since most people have already voted or determined who they're going to vote for already. But if there is a thread of hope for Donald Trump, it, it would require him to win that first tier, get through the second tier, and then pull off the massive upset in Pennsylvania. Not impossible. Highly, highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. So let's, let's go to actual predictions. The worst scenario for Trump, in my view, would be for him to lose nine of those 10 uh, states that he won in 2016. He wins Texas and he loses the Electoral College vote 374 to 164. That would be a landslide. That would be a massive landslide. By the way, if Biden were to win Texas, now we're talking 412 to 126, and now we're into absolute humiliation. And while there would be some enjoyment in seeing Trump humiliated like that, in my view, that would be very bad for the future of the country. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. But that is a scenario that is theoretically possible. That's the worst-case scenario for Trump. The best-case scenario, in my view, for Trump, and I do not see him winning Pennsylvania, though it could be close, the best-case scenario, if everything breaks his way, he gets through the first tier, the second tier, If I think the best scenario for Trump would be he loses 279 to 259. 279 to 259. Interestingly, under that scenario... If we were headed for a 279-259 situation and Wisconsin, let's say Wisconsin was, you know, closer than expected and uh, hadn't been called yet. uh, If Wisconsin were to somehow go to Trump, we would have a 269-269 tie under that scenario, in which case two things would happen. Uh, One, uh, the House of Representatives would decide the next president, which means it would be Biden. And two, we would have all-out civil war in this country. That's what would occur. We would have all-out civil war under that scenario. I do not anticipate that, but that is the best possible scenario, and that includes Biden holding on and winning in Pennsylvania. Under that best-case scenario, if Trump pulls the miracle in Pennsylvania, he would, he would win the election. That's the only possible scenario, and it would be by the smallest, smallest, razor-thin type margin, and it would create probably another civil war under that scenario, too, because we'll be counting votes forever, and it'll probably be court battles, and, you know, Amy Barrett's the new Supreme Court justice, and she'll be probably deciding votes on things. I mean, that's that's a scenario that nobody who cares about this country should want. I don't think it's—I'm hoping it's not very likely— 
but it is in the realm of possibility. My actual prediction, and again, I, I would like to uh, be able to amend this should something happen in the polling in the next several days, but this is my preliminary uh, prediction for what's actually going to happen is that I believe that Biden will win 290 to 248, possibly 296 to 242 if Iowa goes for Biden. So I'm predicting Biden to win. We're somewhere in the realm of 290 or 296 electoral college votes. I have to acknowledge that's kind of the scenario I'm rooting for, which usually in my mind, <laughs> it makes it more difficult for me to predict something because nothing ever turns out like I'd like it to. <laughs> but it just happens to turn out that way. That's what I'm actually rooting for. I'm rooting for Trump to not get crushed, but to lose decisively enough to where we don't go through this horrendous situation of contesting the election. Uh, of course, under this scenario, there is no good scenario. There's no perfect scenario. Under this scenario, Trump is still the titular head of the Republican Party and probably the Republican presidential nominee in 2024 if he wants to be and he's in good enough health. So there's a major downside to that particular scenario, which, with, which is basically what I call the, the close but decisive Biden victory. But that's where I think we're heading. Somewhere in the realm of 290 to 296 electoral college votes. As far as Trump actually winning, I'm going to stick with the same percentage, uh, basically, of last week. It's somewhere in the 5 to 10 percent chance of running the gauntlet, of winning all those first-tier states, winning at least two of the second-tier states, and then pulling off Pennsylvania. That would be the scenario that would be the 5 to 10 percent range of Trump somehow uh, repeating history and pulling off another miracle in 2020. Uh, but uh, I'm not rooting for that. I do not anticipate it. And it would, it, it would require an enormous amount of controversy and angst and, and potential unrest uh, should that end up being the scenario. Now, obviously, we will be providing you with another episode of this podcast on Wednesday, the day after uh, the votes begin to be counted. Let's hope that by next week at this time we will know more definitively what actually does happen. I'll be the first person to admit if I am wrong, uh, but those, for the record, are my predictions at least a week ahead of time. Uh, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this uh, podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual1Pod. That's at Individual1Pod. Until our highly anticipated episode of next week, Thanks so much for listening. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network. <laughs>